The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of our guests and hosts and do not reflect the views and opinions of any participants, employers, or the views of our funders. Fight well, my brother, don't forget your home. Return with victory, tell your woman all you know. And though you fight till you die, to keep worry from her mind. No, you do not fight alone, runs thick as blood in our bones. Welcome to season two of the Speak Freely podcast, a show that brings veterans on to have tough conversations about the politics and policy issues that are dividing America. We're the show that brings on veterans to ask them the fundamental question. Now that they've risked their lives and livelihoods and served this country, what is the change that they want to see, and how the heck are we going to get there? I'm Andrew Pepler. And I'm Joy Turner. Thanks for joining us. Each episode this season, we'll dive deep into one big topic with a central question that we'll try to answer. On today's episode, we're talking to two veterans from the University of Washington and asking them the central question, what is the role of the U.S. tech community in America's national defense? While you're listening, don't forget to give us a review on iTunes and like and share us on Facebook and Twitter. It really helps us out a lot. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Wow, super excited for this month's episode, Joy. We're bringing you all a conversation we recorded in front of a live audience at the Foster School of Business, which is the first time we've tried to do something like this. Joy, what did you think of the new format? I actually liked it a lot. I kind of wish we did all of our shows in front of a live audience, actually. It felt really good. Having the audience there, getting to see their reactions, and kind of feel that good energy during the conversation. And there was a nice spread of food, kind of <laughs> reminded me of Game of Thrones, actually. <laughs> And free beer, so it didn't feel like people were staring at us, but I didn't feel like it was like a courtroom where I was confessing. It felt better than yeah. that, so it was good. Yeah, so it didn't feel awkward to you at all? No, not at all. I'm telling no. you, I liked having the audience there, um, and I guess I kind of just feel natural in front of an audience, <laughs> so I like to shine. That you do, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought it was great, too. I enjoyed some of the performance pressure, and I really liked the audience Q&A at the end. Definitely. So, Andrew, do you want to give our audience some context on this episode? We all know the redacted Mueller report dropped to lots of buzz and media fanfare last week. I think it was more like it kind of fizzled. Yeah. But I mean, we, and I use that term very loosely, have been waiting for two years for this report, and now Barr is playing hard to get. Mm -mm. It's really all very exhausting. So instead of talking about Mueller and the report and Trump, we're talking tech instead. But why talk tech and why talk now? Yeah, well, I, I think a Mueller report episode might have been interesting, but it's already getting a lot of press, and reporters on different sides of the political spectrum are hyperventilating about what is or isn't redacted, what it does or does not mean for the president. I, I don't know. Uh, besides, we wanted to try out this cool live format and bring a topic to our platform that usually doesn't get a lot of attention. Plus, we recorded in the business school, so the tech intersection with defense seemed like an interesting one to explore with some future NBAs. Okay, I can definitely see how that works. I think it's also important to mention the Pentagon's AI strategy was just published in February, for those of you looking yep. for some light reading, followed by the results of its month-long software acquisition and practices study, SWAP for short, in March. Those are big moves, I think, considering the military has been notoriously slow when it comes to the military acquisition process. Sure. And I would say months-long software acquisition and practices study. I, I, they were working on that thing when I was there this summer. Uh, just now published it here in March. Uh, and, but yeah, in my world, those are huge moves. So I, I just wanted to, the opportunity to showcase some of that here to a decidedly West Coast audience that doesn't hear a lot about these issues. And I think we succeeded. Yes, I agree. It did. Uh, it, it went really well, actually. It went really well. All right. So now it's time to go ahead and introduce our guest. I'll start with Catherine, Catherine Pratt. 
For longtime fans of the show, you definitely may recognize Catherine Pratt from our very first episode, the pilot episode, in fact, way back in season one. She's our very first repeat guest we brought on the show. She's also an Air Force vet, a UW club triathlete, recently back from competing at nationals, and on top of all that, she is currently finishing up her PhD in computer brain interfaces here at UW's electrical engineering program. I also have to say that Catherine was recently featured in a Marvel comic called Unstoppable Wasp. So if yeah. you're a comic nerd, comic geek, or just like reading, make sure you check it out. Total, total badass. Yes, and Catherine was joined on this episode by my good friend from Foster, Mr. Nathan Lewis. Nathan is a native Washingtonian. He actually grew up in Edmonds, Washington, just north of here, uh, and is a former enlisted Marine and logistics officer with multiple tours overseas. Since coming to Foster, he's been focused on operations and consulting, and he's been a longtime listener to the podcast. Definitely appreciated his perspective on defense tech, given his exposure to large-scale software systems as a logistics officer. For sure. Catherine and Nathan are both super smart and dropped a lot of knowledge during this episode. So without further ado, we'll kick things over to them to start our conversation. All right, and we are live. So this is uh, episode five, season two of the Speak Freely podcast. Our topic for today is going to be what is the role of the U.S. tech community in America's national defense? Uh, I will go ahead and introduce our first guest for today. This is uh, Nathan Lewis, my colleague here at the Foster Business School. So Nathan, appreciate you being here on the show. Um, uh, for those that can't actually see what's going on right now, Nathan is actually my doppelganger here at Foster, <laughs> and uh, he and I are frequently mistaken for the same exact person. We're fortunate that uh, the MBA program doesn't follow Highlander rules. There can be more than one. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, so, uh, Nathan, uh, if you could give uh, the audience, both here in the room and then uh, back home, uh, a sense of what your background is, your branch of service, uh, how many years you served, uh, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just longtime listener and a friend of the pod. So very excited and honored to be part of the conversation today. So thanks for having me. Of course. Um, yeah, I was a Marine Corps veteran for 10 years. I uh, was a logistics officer, uh, served on both the enlisted and officer side. Um, grew up uh, close by up in Edmonds, Washington, God's country, as we like to say, north of Seattle. Um, yeah, I was the uh, growing up in a single parent household. My father passed away when uh, I was seven and left my mom with five kids, so that was definitely formative, um, and I would say uh, growing up there was, was was good, and I would say when I decided to join Enlisted at 19, it was, it was looking for something else, looking for purpose, looking for a challenge, and really a desire to serve, so that's what drove me to to the Marine Corps and, and obviously stayed for 10 years. So I found that sense of purpose and challenge was, was very, very pleased with my, my chance to serve there. So, yeah. So you, you, you wanted to kind of grow up and, and, and be a man, but like why the Marine Corps, if that's what you wanted? Yeah. You know, everyone's got their, their list of reasons, but I'd say the Marine Corps because of just the reputation, the intensity, the intense professionalism. <laughs> okay. And, you know, if you met 19 year old me, it, you, it would make sense that that kid needed uh, some discipline and, and some intensity in his life. So uh, right. Definitely the right choice. They 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 marketed well to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, jo you know, Joy and I, Army veterans, we won't give you too much shit for, <laughs> Nobody's for being on the show. Thanks uh, for providing we, crayons. As yeah, well exactly. Yeah, we do good. have crayons here uh, in in the buffet. So, um, but yeah, pr really appreciate you being here. Uh, and uh, Joy, do you want to introduce Catherine? Yep. And uh, Catherine also uh, she holds the honor of being uh, our first repeat guest. Catherine was actually on the very first episode of Speak Freely way back when, so thank you for being here again, Catherine, because to come back again says something about us, I guess, Andrew. Mm -hmm. We're doing something right. Um, and so, 
also a fellow Husky, Catherine. So yeah, go ahead and tell us about uh, your branch of service, how long you're in, um, why you joined, what you do now. Cool. So my name's Catherine. Uh, I was in the Air Force uh, and I chose, oop, sorry. Uh, I chose the Air Force because my dad is retired Air Force. So I was born at Eglin, my brother was born at Brooks, and then my dad retired. And growing up, you know, hearing stories, if you want a uh, uh, nice warm bed and hot water um, and a golf course, you join the Air Force. And if you don't want those things, then you can go to the other services. Um, at so, least you admitted. That's, that's oh, no, it was loud and proud. <laughs> No I was so brainwashed growing up. Um, but I also wanted to be an astronaut. I was actually that kid. And my dad had four easy steps to be an astronaut. So it was uh, to be an astronaut, you have to be a test pilot. And to be a test pilot, you have to be a pilot. To be a pilot, you have to study aerospace engineering. I was like, okay, four easy steps. We got this. So uh, I did my undergrad at MIT. I studied aerospace engineering. I did Air Force ROTC while I was there. Um, and then I went to pilot training and I was like, sweet. One of four done. I got to pilot training, and it turns out I suck at flying planes, <laughs> which in retrospect is probably okay. Uh, so I did not make it through pilot training, and they sent me to work on the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, um, the newest and greatest aircraft in the Air Force slash Navy slash Marine Corps arsenal. Um, so that was very fun. Uh, and then I was like, you know what? I'm good. Peace. So I came up here. Worked as a lab coordinator for about a year and a half, and then finally got into grad school. And I have been in the electrical and computing engineering department ever since. Mm. Yeah. And you are done soon. Oh, yes. Yes. If you are listening to this in the future, <laughs> and June 6th has passed, I really hope I pass my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Um, and so today, again, we're talking about tech, technology, use in the military, and its role in national defense. So... You know, when I think about tech and the military, I immediately think drones and AI. And I think back to my time in the military, and it must have been 2012, maybe. And uh, I was in an MP platoon, and we got our first four Ravens in our company, uh, which is a unmanned aerial vehicle. You, I think you fly by a remote. It's the size of like a tricycle. And I'm like, this is so cool. Everyone, we're gonna learn how to fly drones. And then it like sat in mechanics for the entire time. But it, you know, it took two weeks to to learn the training, and um, you know, at least I saw some progress toward uh, you know this this advanced technology beyond like the helmet we wore or or the Kevlar. So I'm I'm interested in hearing first about your experiences with tech in the military. Like, what was useful? What sat in mechanics? Uh, what actually made sense to invest in? Um, so, we maybe start with Catherine. Okay, so Air I Force have, is cool, right? They got all Air the Force. Fun tech so the Air Force does ta- is very cool. Um, just because we have cool ties doesn't mean they're the best. So I use this example uh, now. So you may have heard Alice, which is the automated logistics something system, um, and uh, we actually wrote a song. Uh, in our cover band of who the you know bleep is Alice, and we rewrote it for Alice the automation system because that thing was just a pain in the ass. So maintainers usually it was you know you do your thing and you know you can fix the plane. And so Lockheed Martin in its infinite wisdom was like, okay, we'll have the plane keep track of everything and like it'll tell you when parts need to replace and it'll pre-order them so that when you land, the parts are already there and it's going to be great. Um, and I made the mistake one time at a conference of test pilots in front of one of the chief test pilots for Lockheed Martin 
and calling Alice Skynet because that's <laughs> kind of what it was. And then it never worked. And so it took like twice as many steps for maintainers to do things. And it took like so many more authorizations from supervisors. And it was like, dude, I just want to fix part X in the plane, but Alice won't let me. And it's <laughs> like, really? Really, people? Um, so I, I have many opinions about Alice's system, but it was just, you know, one example of it was supposed to be great and it like inherently just like totally didn't work. Yeah, I mean, so also logistics background within the Marine Corps. So a lot of the systems that I dealt with that were really impactful were the back-end systems. You know, the Marine Corps, just for those of you who don't know, is, is a smaller budget than its sister services and has a proud tradition of kind of being uh, scrappy and resourceful and doing more with less is kind of the ethos. And so we're used to operating in austere environments. Uh, and the most troubling uh, piece of, of, of technology and equipment that also had, I think, like yours, like high delta between what was promised and what was delivered <laughs> was uh, GCSS Marine Corps, which was like every good uh, Marine Corps acronym includes the word combat. So Global Combat Support System <laughs> Marine Corps, uh, which was supposed to be a material readiness, abil ability for commanders and units to have you know, visibility on every piece of equipment that we owned, where it was, what its maintenance readiness was, it's supposed to be this sort of all-inclusive one-touch system. Um, and of course it didn't work. You know, there were worked semi-okay in garrison so when we're actually back at like the actual base but i mean if you went outside into the field next to the building just completely shut down all kinds of issues with connectivity uh with uh, just working on tactical networks was basically impossible and and working in the field or or deployed was was really slow and we it, they're funny stories of us uh, being so uh, tight with bandwidth to run the system that we'd have guys like with clocks like running, okay, wh what time is it in Japan? What time is it in West Coast, East Coast? So we know when when people are sucking juice from the bandwidth on the system, so let's find those off hours. So you'd have guys you know, doing data entry at three in the morning just to be off cycle. Uh, yeah, pretty pretty lousy system. And unfortunately, that's, I think, a lot of the experience with the back-end systems. Um, the shiny toys, I think, get more attention from a technology standpoint, but a lot of the back-end really important, impactful systems kind of get pushed to the back. Yeah, I'll say, I, I, when you talk about shiny toys versus the, the crap that sits in a Connex back at home, I see always, has, have always seen a stark difference between what the deployed troops get and the technology oh, yeah. um, they're using, which makes sense. You know, they're, they're um, at the front of the battle, deployed environment, let's, you know, grade A equipment. Um, so how did the technology differ when you were, de when you were deployed? What did you use downrange that we found ex especially useful for getting after the mission, as they say? Yeah, no, I think w what... The interesting thing that I saw from a logistics standpoint was that the commanders and those folks forward had very immediate, urgent needs, right? Like they, they're, they're responding to immediate threats. And so their, their technology demands are like, I need this fixed yesterday. Uh, and the logistics infrastructure, um, te technological or otherwise analog, digital, um, isn't built to really support that in an efficient way. And so we would be fielding them kind of patch or bolt on solutions, if you like. Um, so there were, for one example, we were deployed uh, in the Middle East supporting uh, another great Marine Corps acronym, SP MAGTAF SENT, uh, Special Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force. <laughs> uh, yeah, motivate. <laughs> and uh, we had to field these uh, very quickly, these uh, Palantir headsets for, for our, our guys uh, up, in, up in the helos doing uh, tactical recovery of aircraft personnel. Um, and this was a must-have from the commander. You know, this is the shiny new toy. I want this right now. Um, but it wasn't integrated with all the other systems that they were running. And so we bent over backwards to get this out there. I mean, it certainly fixed the immediate need that they, they had. But then it created a host of back-end problems 
that wasn't integrated with those systems. So again, it's sort of a systems analysis problem I think that we run into consistently within the Marine Corps is, you know, yes, this is the thing that we want. This is the thing that we're trying to like attack that nearest target, but we're not doing it from a systems analysis kind of standpoint of how do I integrate this into my entire warfighting capability? Yeah, so, and I, I would just add, and I, I appreciate that, uh, uh, both Nathan and, and Catherine. Um, I would just add, as, as somebody who uh, deployed to Afghanistan three times and kind of saw the war at different phases each time, uh, I, was always, uh, I was always awestruck at the difference in technology between deployments, uh, but then also at how slow it was fielded. So... Uh, you know, as an example, I think the, the one that I always go back to is uh, on my second tour, which was in 2009, I was in um, this area in eastern Afghanistan called the Tangy Valley, which just means Valley Valley. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're real, we're real original. Um, and uh, so I was in the Tangy and the Tangy was at the time um, outside of southern Afghanistan was uh, one of the most dangerous places to be in in um in all of the in all of the theater, uh, primarily because of this this particular threat of um, you know very crude uh, mines that were being dug into uh, pathways and and were targeting soldiers that were actually walking as opposed to driving in vehicles. And we call them dismounted IEDs. Um, and uh, you know at the time we didn't have any technology to really help us with that particular threat. Uh, we had one one piece of like fancy tech that came out that was supposed to uh, find wires that had been dug into the ground, um, and nobody told us how to fucking use it. And then we just like walked around, and everything else that we would do was just like visually inspecting a particular area. And then what we found was the most effective technique was to bring Afghan soldiers ar- along with us because they have eyes like fucking hawks or something, mm-hmm. uh, and they could just see like disturbed earth from several hundred uh, feet away. And, and, uh, and that was our, that was the quote unquote technology that we used that, that kept us safe. Um, you know, walking around this, this incredibly dangerous Valley flash forward to my third tour in, in 2012 and the train up to that tour, I was actually going to Southern Afghanistan where this was an even more dangerous and prevalent threat. And, uh, then we started getting, uh, you know, various mine, mine detection equipment, that would have been historically fielded to combat engineers. But that was three years later, right? Meanwhile, every single month, we're losing dozens of soldiers to not, not necessarily uh, who are being killed, but who are being violently injured, you know, and coming home with, with uh, you know, absolutely life-changing, life-altering, um, gruesome injuries. And so... Uh, so I, I, I agree from the standpoint that like, yeah, deployed soldiers probably get more than soldiers do that are, that are in garrison. And there's a lot more money that goes into, into correcting that particular problem set. Um, but we're still just unbelievably painfully slow at fielding that technology that soldiers actually need and that end users actually need. And I think a lot of that is because we don't actually use agile engineering in, in, in the military. So, um, so anyway, that's my perspective on that. Not to be a, a total fucking downer, but uh, <laughs> in, in any case, so so uh, so let, let's talk, let's talk about that speed piece because I think that that folks that are not familiar with the defense acquisition process uh, are, are are don't actually know really how typically how it works. So a a quick overview is that essentially the defense department still relies on something called the requirements process, and so. 
when they have identified that there is an operational need for a particular piece of uh, capability, they will draft up the most asinine, just convoluted document that's called a requirements document, right? And then they end up putting this thing out for uh, RFP uh, to various contractors that are out there that could potentially build the technology. By law, and this is required by Congress, and this is like one of the most mind-numbing things about this whole thing, is that by law, if a contractor says that they can meet the requirement at the lowest price, then DOD must accept the bid at the lowest price. Uh, which is, as we all know, that is does not guarantee quality. It just guarantees that somebody's going to low bid everyone and give you a piece of shit on the on the battlefield. So, um, so it, it's it's a it's a huge problem, and it's and it's still very cl- clunky. And they they've they've managed to loosen some of that up with uh, opening up different contracting authorities and trying to bring in small businesses and non traditional defense contractors. Uh, but there's still a lot of issues there. And there are some businesses, uh, some of them high profile in the last year, that just don't want to do business with DOD because of, quote unquote, ethical concerns. And I just cite for you uh, the Google employees who, who um, sort of rejected the fact that Google was building out AI imaging, AI enabled imaging tools for DOD in this project called Project Maven. So I guess my question for our guests is, you know, what do you think of these these quote unquote ethical concerns that Silicon Valley has, uh, and do they really have merit? And do you think that they are potentially just really particularly acute right now because of who's in office and this political moment? Okay, um, so I think I think the reason right now right now why everything is sort of more important and is more of an issue is because you know we're not in the 1960s anymore when it's like we're going to go out and throw a bunch of money at a problem and solve it and then we're you know going to go to the moon and have all these great sort of offshoots of it and so there's before it was you have you have the government that's doing all the work and then it goes out to industry and now we have industry is the center of everything and it's trickling out to the government but as we have all this technology and we have all this power the question is what are you actually able to do with it and i think that's what people are starting to realize is everything you work on has a a it's a double-edged sword there's something under the side there's never really anything that is purely for good or purely for evil and so when you say that you're working on a project if you haven't thought of what the quote unquote evil side is and someone points it out to you then it's like ah crap you know like that that's my fault but you know instead of being defensive about it it's a okay maybe we can talk about it and so you know there's there's a lot more going on these days in terms of how aware we are of what's going on and the ability for something to go from say you know a small event such as several google employees being upset with the way that a contract was being held to social media and everything else being like, you know, thousands of people have signed on and we now have tech workers coalition, all sorts of other, you know, social media platforms where people actually talk about this. And so I think the awareness is growing, but at the same time, the concerns are much, much greater than they were before. Yeah. I'd largely agree with that. I think for a lot of maybe liberal minded folks, they felt maybe just more comfort with the Obama administration, maybe pushing the envelope on some privacy concerns and, you know, use of drone technology and things like that. And it suddenly it, it crystallized for them, oh, wait, this person that I just absolutely trust to do nothing at all, <laughs> in fact, have a lot of more reservations about is suddenly uh, calling the shots with this now sort of empowered executive. Um, so certainly I think that's, that plays a huge factor. Um, I will say, though, as far as the merit of the ethical consideration, I think 
we we should be expecting that these large firms, given the sort of, you mentioned the shift, Catherine, in terms of it used to be sort of government-driven technological innovation. Now we're looking at these large sort of corporate entities that have a lot of leverage, um, both here and globally. I would expect, <coughs> excuse me, I would expect um, them to exercise some ethical considerations on choosing the projects that they do take. And I am a little bit comforted that they're at least having that conversation. Uh, I would be more concerned if Google and Amazon and uh, Facebook were were true mercenaries taking projects from uh, every government uh, with no regard for the ethical considerations. That, that would give me more pause. Um, we can You can scrutinize each of their individual objections, but I think largely we should be okay with, with these companies exercising that, that agency that they do have. I think one of the <clears throat> things I wanted to talk about is regardless of whether a company like Google with Project Maven chooses to uh, engage in projects, technology projects that in any way are associated with, the, with defense or a military action, you know, regardless of the choice in that matter, these companies who employ workers on U.S. soil, who operate on U.S. soil, who benefit from the regulations and standards and practices that both are the government, specifically the military, put in place to protect our infrastructure um, and our borders to a larger extent. And a lot of, I guess, use of technology that we're seeing here domestically is uh, is focused on how we protect both the so southern and, and northern bo uh, border, uh, particularly. Um, so I'm, you know, with that in mind, companies who, like Google again, who refuse to, um, who are pulled out of technology projects that are associated with the Department of Defense. And you know, one thing I want to go back to is Catherine. You mentioned that technology can be a double-edged sword, and I think this is, you know, when I think about the border, this is that comes up for me, is it a double-edged sword? Should we be using the type of technology that we do use at the border, um, which mainly consists of radio, camera surveillance, some use of drones to uh, you know, monitor people, vehicles coming across the border? Um, when we talk about ethical considerations, you know, for maybe, maybe the first question is, is, do companies have the right to refuse to um, provide you know, for technology in any way, whether it's contracted or, or open source, do they have the right to refuse when they benefit from uh, the use of our military? And two, like for folks, uh, when, we, when we especially consider the border and the human right for someone who is fleeing danger um, to, to live here or at least uh, put in an application to become a citizen here. Um, so, you know, how do we protect the border at the, and at the same time not use that technology to prevent um, folks from migrating to a better place. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Let's unpack that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So, so I think there's there's multiple issues that are kind of being compounded. You have the quote unquote threat at the border and quote unquote migrant caravans and oh my God, we must protect everyone. And you know, the slight tangent is, is that everyone has a right to seek asylum under the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So you know, the fact that these people are legitimately fleeing from you know, something that is endangering their lives and we essentially are immediately profiling when they get to the border, like that that doesn't really sit well with me. Um, if you are really concerned, the ACLU has some really good um, sort of resources you can look for what are your rights at the border, both as a citizen, as a permanent resident, and as a non-resident. And, you know, what are the things that they can and can't do when you get there? And so what I always love to say is, are you going to violate someone's civil rights to find out if you can violate their civil rights? So, you know, when you get to the border, 
Is it a, we're going to start taking your pictures, we're going to take your fingerprints, we're going to look at your phone to see if we should be doing these things. Like that fundamentally my core just bothers me. It's like we have the Bill of Rights and, you know, constitutional liberties for a reason. And if we think writ large that we can say we're going to violate them to see if we can continue to do it to hold you indefinitely to do all these sorts of things, like that really is a problem for me. And so you can get to these issues of, well, we're doing it for safety, so we should have a, a database of every person in the United States so we can match it to make sure you're a United States citizen. What is the security you have on that system? Who has access to it? How often is it updated? You know, how easy is it for someone to hack? There are so many issues that come up with these, like, universal databases. And if anyone claims to be able to do it, you know, that's great. You know, I would – it's kind of like that – wasn't there that guy that, like – had his social security number out on the internet or something that was like, I have a credit monitoring thing and, you know, here's my actual social security number and we'll try to use it. And eventually someone did use it. Like they weren't able to protect it for forever. But there's these these broader issues of why is it we think we need to use these technologies? And are there other ways we can address the problems that don't, like we shouldn't have to slap tech on everything as a solution. Like facial recognition is not gonna fix everything. I guarantee you that. Like adding blockchain to the name of your startup is not going to fix everything. It'll help Sorry. your share price, though. It, it will help your share price. Oh my god! I think I saw like blockchain coffee at one point in time, and I was like, what "The hell?" Anyway, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I guess to the question of do they have the right to refuse? Um, because they're benefiting, I think, from sort of a, that, that blanket of freedom. I suppose yeah, the yeah, argument is. Um, I, I would say yes to a point. Um, so I think everyone here perhaps would question the validity of this sort of national emergency that we're in uh, on the border specifically. Um, but I guess like from a uh, philosophical standpoint is what if there were a true national emergency? What if there was a true case of, you know, the, the national defense is paramount. There's a declared state of emergency that Congress has supported. There is uh, a declaration of war, for example. You know, is it is it then right for these companies to refuse to perform, you know, DOD contracts? I, I don't maybe necessarily have the, the 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 entire answer on that, but I think that's the stress case that that one should engage in when, when questioning this. I think you can look at this case at its face and be like, that's ridiculous. Of course, it is ethical to to, to not play along with this farce of a national emergency on the border. Um, I think that's that's really for me where it comes down. Um, I, I think there's also. Uh, a question that we should have around, the, again, the agency question for these tech companies. They have a right to choose the projects that they engage in. I don't agree with a, a blanket no DOD um, policy because if you think about the, the spectrum of military operations that the DOD supports, and I'm thinking specifically around disaster relief, humanitarian response, non-combatant evacuation operations is something that the Marine Corps specializes in. Um, there is, in my mind, not a clear ethical objection to supporting those those very laudable uh, missions that the military performs and so you should question certainly as Catherine highlighted like what's the evil use of this uh, and if and if it's clearly supporting something that's just more banal and mundane and back systems that that will enable the military just to perform its, its operations better then there's really not as, as clear of an ethical case or an objection in my mind but interesting to hear what you guys think of that yeah um yeah, no, I and I think I think we'll get into that a little bit more with some of our discussion around uh, around AI. We we've mentioned, you know, uh, buzzwords out there, and I think you know, <laughs> AI, blockchain, are are kind of on the same level at the moment. I mean, it's it's become one of these words that doesn't actually mean anything. But uh, 
But, so, you know, just, just some big news for those of you guys that weren't following uh, defense news as closely as I do. Some big news out of the Pentagon in February is that uh, they released the unclassified version of their AI strategy. Uh, and if you're interested in that sort of thing, I would definitely check it out. But some of the language from that is uh, AI is rapidly changing a wide range of businesses and industries. It is also poised to change the character of the future battlefield and the pace of threats we must face. We will harness the potential of AI to transform all functions of the department positively, thereby supporting and protecting U.S. service members, safeguarding U.S. citizens, defending allies and partners, and improving the affordability, effectiveness, and speed of our operations. Nothing like a good DOD strategy for a solid run-on sentence. But um, <laughs> so, 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 so to kick this part of the discussion off, I, I thought uh, a thought experiment may actually be really, really cool to discuss with you guys. So let's say I'm a young developer with incredibly valuable knowledge and experience using machine learning algorithms and neural networks. And I look around the world and there are thousands of pressing social problems that I could work on. Why in the world would I choose U.S. defense or national security issues? I suppose you could, <clears throat> excuse me, I suppose you could take part of the argument that I you know, illuminated a moment ago that the U.S. military does far more than, I think, just combat operations. Um, it exists as an entity that supports across the spectrum of, of operations that it, that it engages in. So I think uh, there's there's certainly a case to supporting the work that it does, um, even just from a standpoint of effective governance. Um, the, the wasteful uh, implementation of technology in the DOD hurts American taxpayers and hurts, I think, the country as a whole if we're operating uh, sort of behind uh, what what industry is, and, and we're wasting taxpayer dollars, you know, using outdated systems and throwing new technology in Connex boxes. So, if there's a way that you can improve just the performance of a massive and expensive government entity, there's a there's certainly a case there, and that frees up resources. I think as Eisenhower illuminated uh, decades ago, that the less money that we're spending and wasting on the military-industrial complex is money that we could be using for all kinds of social issues domestically and abroad. Yeah, going along with that, I think there's there's an incentive structure that's missing. So, you know, you can go make six figures, you know, kind of seven figures. I don't even know how inflated the salaries are in San Francisco these days. So you, you can go make crap tons of money or you can go live in the suburbs of D.C. and make really shitty money. And it's like, what do I want to do? And so we have to come up with a way to incentivize why you should be working in this problem so you can kind of you can think about it as a what's going to draw someone away from San Francisco is it maybe we can let you stay in for instance San Francisco but you're working remotely is it a maybe we'll start paying you more than you know 32k or whatever it is um when I was in a fellowship in congress recently I found out how little staffers are paid and it's like mind-blowing how poorly we pay the people who actually run this country so you know Obviously, the DOD is not going to be paying, you know, two hundred thousand dollars someone to come work at the DOD. But what is what is something else they can offer other than money to make it so that it's appealing to do that rather than you must choose between the good, you know, doing good things at Google versus doing the quote unquote bad things in the military? Like, how do you let everyone know that the good opportunities are there, such that you don't have this brain drain away from the center of policymaking in the lovely city of Washington D.C. <laughs> Should we have like a you know a Trump developed the developed that's a big word uh, created the space force? Should we have like a tech force of I guess I guess military <laughs> folk? No, this is a serious question. No, 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 I, you yeah. know um, because a lot of the work that the DoD does right now, right now that is advancing technology AI 
machine learning is contracted uh, and it's it's not in-house and I think about uh, you know what you're talking about earlier with logistics and material maintenance and you know a plane being able to, to tell its 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 uh, its maintainer like when I'm ready to be uh, to get some service done uh, so, so you know is the answer to then just train our soldiers our, our, our Marines our airmen on how to use this technology. Not only does that strengthen our military, it gives us the the opportunity, the ability to develop this technology in-house, but then we you know, we also give soldiers, uh, I keep saying soldiers, troopers, the, the opportunity to take those skills and then market themselves when they get out of the military, which I, you know, I think is a crucial thing that's, that's still needed as we talk about um, where jobs are going in the future. Um, so you know, is, the, is that the future of the military? Are we gonna become this, this force that is um, advancing technology, kind of like we used to be uh, at the at the forefront of uh, of advancements, um, or are we gonna stay behind? I mean, I would love to be able to you know go somewhere and not see like a three and a half inch floppy disk in the computer towers. Someone actually tweeted a picture of this the because the the Mueller report which came out today, hello uh, past history whatever, <laughs> um, but you know they they released it on CDs and everyone's like crap do our do our towers still have CD-ROM drives? And everyone had to go check, and someone's like, in 2015, I had a CD-ROM drive and a three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk. And it's like, you know, it, should know it, it shouldn't be a joke of how antiquated our systems are. So I think, you know, to be able to upgrade those systems, and then just generally, and this is one of my hobby horses, but general tech literacy in the United States and the world is so, so terribly bad. And so it's not just a, what are we going to be teaching people when they go through basic or when they go through officer training school to make, to bring them up that tech literacy? What are we doing from K through 12 or in community college or in college to actually provide them with a specific, like a baseline that you can then build on when you get there? Like, I don't think it's the military's job to teach some 18 year old kid who comes in, you know, basic, you know, you know, being able to do two-factor authentication or, you know, be able to, you know, run, you know, some sort of server, something like, like, no, like, security and privacy should be something that is baked in as we go along, and I feel like that's just not the order that we did things, and so now we're at a point where it's like, you get to the military and it's like, oh, what do you mean I have to, like, certify my email when I send it, like, oh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'll get no, up my hobby horse ridiculous, But it's so true when yeah. PII just <clears throat> flies around, I, sh- I feel like I'm, I'm indicting the military right now, but <laughs> no, you're you're it's you're pretty true. Accurate. You know, yeah. everyone's PII in the unit just gets sent sent over emails, uh, you know, uncertificated, like you said. And so, right, there's a learning curve that yeah. Social security numbers. Oh yeah. my god, definitely. At one point in time, I had in my sent my social for something, and like I couldn't send it because I like didn't have a CAC. Like I was somewhere and I just sent it, and it was like, oh my god, you sent your social security number unencrypted. I'm like. Do you realize how many people have this in the unit? Like, <laughs> I really don't care. I need whatever the hell I needed this for. Just make it happen. <laughs> yeah, I wish. I wish that the, sort of the cutting edge technology of transformers were actually being used by the U.S. military, like you see in Hollywood. But uh, it's not the case. And I, I think, yeah, there's so many cases of just ridiculously antiquated technology. I think Windows XP was just recently taken off of Navy ships. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm probably incorrect. I'm not my finger on the pulses in there. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the technical aptitude in both the user level and the leadership is just missing. And I think training and implementation is going to be huge. Um, I, I'll, there's got to change, I think, a culture around technology. And I'll speak about the Marine Corps. It's, despite being, we pretend that we're innovative and, you know, resourceful, I think there's a sort of culture of incremental improvements. And 
and the sort of the, the inertia of the status quo is really quite strong. Um, we, we also need to change, I think, the attitude towards who are going into these roles. Who are the people that we're recruiting? That pipeline that, that Catherine mentioned so critical. I mean, even just within the military pipeline, if we're thinking we're going to rethink potentially moving logistics from like an analog to digital space, who are those folks that we're going to be making, you know, user level logisticians? We need to sort of rethink the recruitment, the training, um, just the segmenting, the type of people that we're going to be putting into motor T, into vehicle maintenance and, and those kind of things, because it's no longer going to be just an analog world. Right. You're no longer just turning a wrench. Yeah. You're, you're, you're using very advanced systems and processes to, to maintain these systems. And I will say, like, we were talking back about, Andrew brought this up about just how slow the process is, and I think that's another big factor, is I remember first hearing that the military was going to study how to make a uniform fit women better. And that was five years later. Yeah, <laughs> legit. So it that was that had to be 2008, maybe 2009. And those those women, those female uh, shaped uniforms, whatever you want to call them, came out in what 2015 or 16. So lit so literally six, almost six years for, hey, this is a great idea. Let's study it to to market. And you know anybody would say that's probably too slow when we've been making clothes for how many years? You know, thousands <laughs> for as long as you know. I think we've been wanting to cover ourselves. Um, and so I, I just want like the answer: Are are we going to be a military of the future? Can we get there? It's year 2090, 2100. You know, are we flying cars or are we still trying to to get the the LMTV to you know to work to to get the the Humvee to work? I think, again, it's a cultural shift. Uh, you know, so some great quotes around this. You know, uh, Andrew mentioned, you know, some great ones from, from that recent finding. But the, uh, the former Deputy Secretary of Defense mentions, you know, we're, we're in a big technological competition with great powers. You know, we cannot assume that our technological superiority is going to be a given and we're going to have to fight for it. And I think, uh, you know, when you look at other reports that highlight that AI and these other technologies are high priorities for peer threats like China, uh, we simply can't afford to, to, to let them, you know, degrade our competitive advantage and, and surpass us. It's just, it's going to be a necessity and it might be an ugly and uh, messy process to get there, but we need to change the culture and, and definitely make some big changes. Yeah. I think the, you know, as the generations move through and you start getting some millennials in, in, you know, positions of power, you know, I don't even know what Gen Z is anymore, but you know, the Gen Zers are going to show up and be like, what do you mean I have to do? I don't even know. But, you know, like there's there's going to be an expectation of if I'm going to do this, I expect it to be like everything else I've done, like the Xbox that I played growing up or, you know, the ease with which I sync my Bluetooth to, you know, the my phone to my car. Like there's going to be some sort of expectation. And if they don't adapt to it, it's going to be really hard to find people. So how do you how long do you have to wait for enough people to rise to the ranks who have become accustomed to certain things in real in you know outside life to then make those changes come back down so that the new people coming in aren't terrified when they come in and say oh look it's you know a extra slot in my computer what's that for it's like that's the three and a half inch lobby's out like <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's uh i don't know i had a uh oh, you do you want to go ahead andrew oh no yeah um so yeah so i i guess maybe just to, to close this portion of the the episode out real quick I, I did want to get into uh, give Catherine a chance to kind of showcase a little bit of uh, her research and maybe you can explain uh, to folks what it is that you work on, but, oh but uh, it, you know, 30 seconds or less. Uh, and, 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 uh, but, but very curious to see, you mentioned this, you have to think through how your technology can be used or misused. 
So uh, if you could tell us what your technology is and how you seeing it, see it being used or misused for defense applications uh, in the future, that'd be awesome. Okay. So uh, my research is Batman Forever Meets Brain Hacking. So if I'm recording your brain signals and I know what you're looking at and when you look at it and I show you specific images and stimuli, I can begin to elicit information from you, like who you know, where you live, your bank PIN number, et cetera, et cetera. So... Uh, the sort of technology that we're, we're moving for with Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and, oh, my God, we want to be able to control Facebook with our brains. We want to be able to play Xbox with our brains is great because, A, that'd be kind of cool. And, B, if you are paralyzed, you'd be able to you know in, interact more with these things. But the same technology can be used to out-spies. Um, you can actually figure out whether or not someone recognizes things from the country you think they're from versus the country that they claim they're from. Um, I know the army is actually working on, um, brain recorders that actually will track to see if you're falling asleep in a convoy. So you can either, no, they actually are really working on this. Like a, maybe get those autonomous trucks going. So you're not recording your soldier's brains. The, the first technology they would work on is a way to spy on their own soldiers, <laughs> which is how they use drones overseas as well. Yep. So. Or like the one of the initial concepts for the F-35 drone strike fighter was it would be a four ship and there would only be one pilot. Like the pilot would be in the lead ship and then magically controlling the three other planes using their thoughts because flying one plane is obviously not hard enough. Like there's all sorts of ways that you can think about the military recording information from your brain. I think someone was talking about, oh, well, maybe we could just do these for, like, security clearances. I'm like, oh, hell no. Absolutely <laughs> not. You know, what about making these, like, lie detector tests? Like, you know, there's all sorts of really crazy, stupid things that you can do. You don't even have to be in the military, but, you know, God knows what else DARPA is thinking of at this point in time. So, yeah. Sorry to scare you all. <laughs> <laughs> but but what, 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 what do you see it being used as positively, potentially, for a defense or a national security application? What do you think? So like, does it give us a, a, just a ton of capability? Is this a way uh, that we can potentially offset, um, you know, great power competitors in the future? Or wh what do you think? I mean, the one that I can think of off the top of my head right now is individuals who are paralyzed or are missing limbs from um, service. So it's more on the veteran side. But how can we provide, you know, a better, you know, post-military life to someone? Can we allow them to still type on a phone, you know, post on Facebook. Can we allow them to interact with friends, you know, via the internet by playing, you know, World of Warcraft or whatever. I am so out of dated with my references <laughs> to games. I'm so sorry. Um, I at least stopped using, what was it, Call of Duty? I don't even know anymore. Um, but, you know, like, there's, there's ways that these tools can be used to improve lives, but you know, once you once you've improved someone's life above the place where they currently are, is it we want to bring you back to baseline? So we want to have you let you have a Luke Skywalker arm, so that you know you completely have an independent um, prosthesis. Is it oh, we're now going to give you an exoskeleton so that you can control it and you can can walk again or you can pick up twice as much as you did before? And so you know, there's this question of improvement versus augmentation. And I think that this technology would be really good for the improvement side. And it's when you get to the augmentation side and you're like, I have questions. Yeah, yeah that does get spooky. Well, uh, this has been a fantastic discussion. And I think that we could talk about this stuff with you guys all day. Uh, but we definitely want to open things up to the audience. So I think what we're going to do is just have a, a brief pause, brief intermission here and kind of reset some of our recording equipment. Uh, but please join me in a very brief round of applause for our guests and uh, thank you for being here.
Uh, and we'll we'll pause and take an intermission. All right, we're back uh, for a little audience Q and A here uh, with our our guests Nathan and Catherine. Um, and I think leading off the questions is going to be one of my NBA colleagues, Rohan Sebastian. Rohan, go ahead. Yeah, thanks everyone. Um, so what I was curious is your thoughts on the idea of there being like a first mover advantage when it comes to defining an ethical framework for new technologies that could be used for potentially for combat operations or for surveillance. So for example, um, Microsoft recently came out with what uh, they are detailing as sort of a, a framework for the ethical use of AI. And um, I think Nathan alluded to previously the idea that um, if we are not developing certain technologies, then other countries such as China or Russia could be developing those technologies. And by working on them and pioneering them first, could potentially define like what an ethical framework could look like. And um, I'm wondering, you know, what are your opinions on on that sort of idea? I have lots of thoughts, but you guys are the guests. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, I would say, one, I'll, I'll caveat by saying, I think sometimes first mover advantage is a bit overrated. Um, so you, you might be able to set the terms of the debate, but then someone is maybe even a second mover advantage where you come in and sort of improve upon uh, the hard, messy work of the first mover. Uh, and I think Catherine really, really well laid out some of the sort of messy, ethical kind of figuring out as you go stuff that a lot of these companies are going to have to deal with. Um, and a later entrant might just be able to kind of bypass that and see what worked and what didn't. Um, but to directly answer your question, I think there is an advantage, um, at least at this point, um, to setting the terms of the debate. And I hope, again, that these big companies with a lot of leverage and a lot of agency take the time to do that. Um, they set kind of an ethical guideline that is going to shape the development of these technologies in a way that hopefully limits the sort of evil side consideration that uh, that we're concerned about in the future but I don't know Catherine you got any yeah so uh because uh, Endgame is coming out next week and I am a massive Marvel fan <laughs> um I can think about you know all the so in the the first Avengers god I'm such a nerd um you know the the reason they had you know phase three and you know why they're doing it was because Thor showed up and then oh my God, now we've announced to the world that we have all these technologies and now everyone's going to come attack Earth. And so that first mover strategy of we're going to do it so we can put our, our stake in the ground and then everyone else will be like, oh crap, they're doing thing. We should do it too. And it sort of perpetuates this, why did we start it in the first place? So, you know, thinking about the, what was it that initiated it? Was it, is there actually a threat? Is it, oh, we're just going to sit here and think about life and then come up with a problem that we think exists and then try to solve it? Or is it a, we definitely, it's like the nuclear deterrence. Like we want to have the biggest stick in the room. And so I think from a military perspective, at least from that, you know, big stick in the room, like that may not be the thing you want because then you're showing the rest of the world, here's all the things that you need to be better at to defeat us with versus the, okay, we're going to actually survey what this this defense space is and figure out how we're going to plan for it. And I obviously you have like the 20 year plans and 50 year plans and blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, it's like you don't want to poke that bear too much because, you know, at some point the bear is going to fight back. And then you, you're like, oh, crap, you know, we worked on this thing and now Russia and China are going to beat us at it. And it's like, oh, what do we do? And it's like, well, yeah, but why did you poke the bear to begin with? So, yeah. Uh, although, don't you think maybe there's we've talked about the peer threat a little bit, but aren't there some players that are probably already doing this without those ethical considerations? And so I'm thinking specifically around China. Oh, yeah. 
Um, so maybe we aren't even in the discussion around, are we the first mover on this? Might be the first mover on setting ethical guidelines, but um, we don't have the luxury of deciding whether or not to, to get started on this, given that we're kind of reacting oh, yeah. to them. No, absolutely. And I think um, I was recently at a conference called Be Robot, and there was um, a poster that was from the U.S. Military Academy where they actually put together a multidisciplinary course amongst the department where they actually look at um, asymmetrical threats and what do you do with novel technologies. I think they're talking about like autonomous systems or AI or something. And how do you, how do the cadets actually talk through the problem of we have a capability, the other people have a different capability. What are the rules that we can use to actually combat this without, you know, violating civil liberties or, you know, human rights. And so, you know, this is like a first of its kind, I think, which is why we're at this conference and you can read their paper online or their, um, their, one pager online about what the course talks about, but that hasn't really happened before, I think. Yeah. And so to actually have these discussions with, you know, the junior officers and even, you know, the junior enlisted who are probably going to be the ones out there, like carrying whatever on the back or whatever it is that they do, you know, to have these discussions then so that we're not coming back as a general be like, so about that thing that we said that we were going to do. And now we've poked the bear and it's like, well, you know, if you thought about that earlier, so that's, that's kind of the perspective that I think of in terms of we just need to be more prepared to have these conversations earlier rather than later when they're much more difficult. Yeah, like an innovation with the end user in mind would be innovative for <laughs> the <What>? military. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I, and I could just, I'll just add on to that. Um, so I, I had the opportunity to uh, serve as a fellow on the Defense Innovation Board uh, this summer. So I was in D.C. Um, and, and I can say with a very high degree of confidence that um, even at the most senior levels of, of DOD, there are people that are concerned and that are talking about this precise issue. And, uh, you know, one of our projects as fellows this summer was to do some um, uh, sort of surveying, if you will, of this ethical AI landscape and uh, looking at all of the various, the Googles and the company, uh, these other companies of the world, nonprofits as well, OpenAI is another one that have these sets of ethical principles and then sort of saying, okay, well, what can DOD pull from this? Because the, the precedent that's already been set uh, at DOD is something called the, we call it the law, law of war, or the law of armed conflict um, that, that created these guidelines that we say, okay, this is ethical conflict versus unethical conflict. And it has to do with various principles like proportionality and some other things um, that, uh, that we in the, in, in the United States uh, have led on and made sure we're baked into various treaties with NATO and, and the UN and everything like that. And so, um, so I think I think right now is a very critical time to be setting these various rules, the rules of the road. And I'm really, for one, I'm really glad to see uh, DoD sort of stepping into that discussion and making sure that they're a stakeholder uh, at the table uh, because I think they they have a, a, a very critical role here and they will set the moral tone for the rest of the world. Uh, assuming our technology is the one that wins. All right. Thank you guys for doing this, by the way. Um, so there's going to be a lot to unpack in this one, but uh, it's similar to Rowan's question, which is around sort of these Silicon Valley companies. Um, and what comes to mind is Google in China. Um, and from a business perspective, these companies have stakeholders. They have dollars and revenue on their mind. But of course, there's, there's national security issues. Um, so I'm kind of interested to hear your thoughts on uh, you know, innovation, other countries using innovation, and sometimes they're very upfront about what they're using it for. Other times there might be more surreptitious, uh, nefarious uses for it. Um, but with the government and how they, what that interaction between Silicon Valley, 
should look like, could look like, um, in terms of these public companies with their own set of requirements and stakeholders and things like that, working with countries maybe we consider enemies and kind of what obligation do they have? Should the government step in? I mean, there's a lot of different angles you could attack this from, but I'd be interested to hear, you know, you guys all have uh, uh, business experience, what your thoughts on in, in that dynamic and what that should look like. Could you, uh, yeah, and uh, the, uh, fantastic question. Yeah. Could you just say your name? Sorry, uh, my name is Ben, ben, ben Schwartz. All right, Ben Schwartz. Roger that. Yeah, I can start off. So I, I think, again, it's absolutely fair to expect these companies to follow the ethical guidelines that they proudly claim that they follow. Um, so that's one thing. Um, another is, I think it, it brings up a great point. So we had an earlier discussion around do these companies have the right to refuse the U.S. government, given that they're sort of benefiting from the security that the government provides? And when I'm thinking about these massive multinational quasi-state tech companies that have business globally, many of them in China, India, Russia, wherever, um, that same logic that we applied to that U.S. question could be applied in China or Russia or anywhere else. And so that complicates our discussion around how they work vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. government even, because then there's sort of a precedent set that, well, you honored the request of the U.S. government to support defense technology. So when the Russian government comes knocking, you sort of cut your legs out from under you to say, no, we don't do that. So um, again, I think it's incumbent that, that they approach all of these cases, including the dealing with the U.S. government around sort of an ethical, ethical start point. Yeah, I was trying to think of an example for, you know, when one country versus another country. And the one I can think of is Australia. And they recently passed uh, an encryption or lack thereof law. So uh, for those of you who aren't uh, um, from Access Now or from the sort of um, advocacy side, um, there's a, a group of nations called Five Eyes. And it's like US, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and the UK. I hope I got that right. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. So five eyes. And so they, they have an intelligent sharing agreement. And this past summer and this past fall, Australia passed a bill that said we can at any point in time as the government tell any tech company or any person in a tech company that you have to create a backdoor or provide us information or be able to decrypt anything that we ask. You can't tell anyone and there is no court that you can go to to appeal our request. And that is incredibly terrifying from a civil liberties perspective because if it passed in Australia, which it did, you know, that that's now one country of the four. And so is that going to come to the United States? Is that going to come to Canada? You know, if you want to be very paranoid about it, you can guess that, you know, at some Five Eyes meeting a couple of years ago, like who has the like least stringent civil liberties, let's go try this there mm -hmm. to prove that it can happen. And then we can spread it everywhere else because in Australia they have, there's no concept for like a right to privacy. They like, they don't have a, a bill of rights. And so it was very easy there to say, we can have access to anything we want, but now what is going to happen to the tech companies who operate in Australia? Can you have an iPhone in Australia? I know signal, um, the messaging app put out a statement about this whole thing about we're going to still operate there and we still will never be able to decrypt the messages or tell you anything about them. Give us a shot, you know, Australia. And so you're starting to see these agreement, like multinational agreements and what happens in one is going to have direct effects in the other. And it's what are the tech companies going to do about it? And if it's bad enough, is Apple or Microsoft or Google, are they just going to pull chocks and come out of Australia? Because that's the stand they're going to take. We haven't seen that yet. But who knows? Because we don't know how many of these requests have been made yet because it's all secret. So, yeah. you know, yay. 
No, Five Eyes is a is a is a fascinating example because uh, another another thing with Five Eyes that happened uh, within the last couple of years was, um, you know, some of the integrity of that particular uh, intelligence sharing agreement uh, was challenged because of New Zealand's very cozy relationship with the Chinese government. Uh, and to put that in perspective, uh, the Five Eyes are the only ones that actually share on U.S. secret networks. Okay. So even in Afghanistan, which was a NATO ISAF effort, we had a separate classified network that we used for all of the NATO countries, and then the Five Eyes got to use U.S. secret, right? So, so that we're talking about the absolute highest level of classifications uh, that we're willing to share with these countries, and each one of them is, is, is sort of picking their own regulatory road uh, to go down, and it has consequences for the rest of us. The only, thing, the only other thing I would add is that uh, I, I always I go back to like other technological or historical precedents that we have when it comes to um, uh, creating these agreements. We've already walked down this path, right? We have uh, all kinds of dual use uh, technology agree and trade agreements around um, anything that could be built into a missile around trading explosive material. Uh, we, uh, you know, a number of years ago decided that, uh, that no more than 25% of a U.S.-based uh, airline could be owned by a foreign government. And I think that when it comes to AI and some of these other uh, technologies that you could argue could be used for, for dual use or if they do a certain percentage of their business with the defense firms or what have you, um, that those companies should not have foreign ownership, you know, period. I think, I think that's a reasonable expectation of a U.S.-based company. Um, and I would love to see something like that happen in, in the future when it, when it, as it relates to, to this type of technology. So, Joy, did you have anything to add? Yeah. <clears throat> what I'll add is, uh, Ben, when you, when you asked your question, what I, what I thought about and one of the topics we actually had on to talk about today was the social costs for these companies. And, and I, I don't know if I completely could articulate what the social costs are today without seeing it from both sides. So a company like Google, which, you know, I assume has a very liberal employee pool, is a company where the social cost to do defense with the, excuse me, the social cost to do business with the Department of Defense is too high. And so for, for shareholders, for stakeholders, for employees, um, I think today Google, Google loses um, when they do uh, business with the DOD rather than you know, increasing their pro profit margin uh, or what have you, where I think the opposite might might be true in other countries, where if you're not if you're not supporting the government in national defense, then you're on the, the losing side. Yeah, you're on the exactly <laughs> exactly you're on the losing side of social uh, of the social cost. And I'll say, you know, this isn't unheard of in the United States today. I think of I don't know what DNA company it was recently, maybe multiple companies, but you know, came right out and said that if the government asks us for or if a, a law enforcement agency asks us for this information, we're not gonna we're not going to refuse them um and so personally i think you know if if you're if you're a law-abiding citizen um you know sh why are you refusing to provide the government with uh you know access to you know dna for for instance i don't I, I don't know you know what the right answer to that is but it's interesting questions to think about is you know when we talk about these issues i think it's important i think companies consider the social cost of their decisions um whether in their uh, uh, in their proposal, or excuse me, in their um, plans t uh, to support DoD or not support DoD, and that kind of AI technology. 
Can I jump in? Yes. Yeah. So um, I will I will bring up an example. Um, Dow Chemical is the company that made napalm. And before they made napalm in the 1960s, they were like, you know, saran wrap company. Like they were making household goods and they decided to take this contract to create incendiary, terrible, terrible napalm. And then people saw the pictures of napalm being used in Vietnam and the country went, holy shit, you're doing what now? And I think the estimate is Dow lost a billion dollars in revenue because everyone was like, boycott, don't do it. Because it was, you know, that that one, those four years, I think, that they had the, the contract they were actually selling compounded and damaged their brand so much that over the years, everyone's like, you know what, we don't want to deal with it. And so, you know, what is there an, an equivalent, like a napalm equivalent almost to, to now? And when are we going to see that? Um, and just two seconds, Joy, off of your comment on the DNA. If you want to have me back for a three-peat, I can talk <laughs> all about data privacy and reasonable expectations of privacy and, you know, warrants and things like that and why those databases are burning cesspits of terribleness. So, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I guess I would also just add a little bit of a wrinkle is when you look at Dow, there's the portion of their business that was involved with Napalm, um, it highlights that even if it's only small, like 1%, right, mm-hmm. uh, it can have a huge outsized impact on the perception of the business and yep. even their revenues. Um, but when we look at, like, the Google case, you know, we're talking about they, they turned down one project. Um, but I bet if you dig, they're doing other DOD stuff. Um, and when you think about also is it is it a moral, ethical reason that's really at the heart of their business decision or is it also just part of that economic calculus? Uh were they confident that they were going to win that project against Amazon? You know, maybe not. Was it worth, uh, you know, the, the the scope of their business? Were they seeing the PR was not worth kind of the expense of that $10 billion contract? You have to look at that a bit as well. And I think these calculations are going to vary company to company when you look at like kind of like the, the share of their portfolio, like where they're doing business, how much of it is government related and not. Because ultimately, everyone has, I think, to be cynical, everyone has their price. <laughs> I think... Uh, these principles will go out the window when enough of your business is with the Chinese government or with, you know, any entity you like. Um, so that should give us further pause on, you know, empowering these guys to do stuff. Hi, uh, thank you for doing this. Uh, my name is Nader, and uh, my question relates to the speed to market of ideas that we were just discussing. Um, can you speak about the bureaucracy and the structure in the military and how it might slow down experimentation and innovation? for some of these uh, technologies, because um, this is in reference to an article I read recently by Adam Grant, who is an organizational psychologist at Wharton. And he spoke about the barriers to creativity and innovation in work environments that don't uh, encourage disruption and the innovation that we might need. He quoted the military as a classic example where structure and discipline are highly valued. And that can stifle um, innovation because sometimes you need so many approvals from senior officials. Seniority is um, rewarded over performance. And I was just wondering, could you talk to your experiences in the military navigating such a structure and how we could uh, navigate that to increase this innovation that we need? Thank you. Um, I will point you to a fantastic book by Ed Catmull. Catmull, yes. Um, Creativity Inc. He is um, the head of, he basically founded Pixar. And so it's a book about organizational practices and how they created open environments at Pixar. And then at Disney when they got acquired. 
and talking about how you have an open door policy and how, you know, anyone can speak up. And just because you have a name like Steve Jobs doesn't mean that you get everything. And so it's really interesting to look at how you create that environment of openness. And then I look back on my time in the military and I'm like, oh, God, you know, the the chain of command to, to quote Firefly, the chain of command is the chain I go to get you with to beat you with until you realize he's in ready command um, that that sort of innate hierarchy that everyone is drilled into them and whatever training course they go to. By the time you get to whatever your duty station is, there's almost like no more will. Is that is that how I would have put it? I'm going to spend odds. It's like, OK, I must do it this way. And so unless you're going to change 200, 100 years of military service overnight, I mean, give it a couple days. But, you know, that's that's not going to happen for that openness to say, I have a question or I have an answer. So, yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. Um, I would just say that on a brighter note, there are folks within the military and within the chain of command that are agitating for this change. Um, I can speak from the Marine Corps perspective. You had a previous guest for your State of Union episode, which was great, um, Krista Bobbin who works in the next log, um, sort of next generation of logistics for the Marine Corps Innovation Lab. Um, and they're doing really great things on implementing that, iterating fast, moving quicker. Um, there's also sort of uh, the Marine Corps Deputy Commandant for Installation and Logistics has uh, instituted a digital transformation initiative. And so they've empowered some you know, chief digital officers, chief data officers to go in and identify the barriers that are both cultural and structural and organizational behind some of that transformation, and they're empowered to really provide very direct recommendations to commanders on how to fix that. The problem, though, <laughs> is in the short term, we not only run into there's a problem of culture, I think there's also, because of that culture and because of that long sort of pipeline to innovate, there's just bad financial incentives for these tech startups and for these, these you know tech-minded folks to work with the DOD, because if you think of the DOD as a market, it's a really high-risk market with a really long runway that a lot of these startups and, and venture-backed folks just cannot put up with. Like, if I'm going to have to deal with two to three years before I can actually see any revenue coming back, um, I've, I've already run out. And so I, I would rather just play in other spaces and, and fish in other ponds if I'm the smart guys, the small guys, excuse me. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah. that's, that's the immediate problem is how do we change the incentives? And, and I think some of that, unfortunately, has to come from the culture as yeah. well. I will tout the horn of the Air Force that just had a startup pitch day where they had people come in and pitch different ideas and they literally had their government credit cards and it was like 15 minute pitch, cool, you get money, swipe, it's in your bank account, go. <laughs> and it's like, that's just like mind blowing for, for a military institution to actually like give you money on the spot versus we're going to go through to your acquisition process, <laughs> you know? Yeah, because that's terrible. I think... Um <clears throat> so I think that's that's one you know, ex, uh, uh, change that's directed to bringing more ideas uh, in, into the military, whether that's we're training our soldiers in a different way, we're writing them in a different way, or we're, we're just getting bigger brains, uh, smarter brains inside inside the military um, via contractors. But one of the things I, th I think of a lot is is an, an attitude that we had in the military that that I'm proud of is, is like the, you know, suck it up and, and do it anyway, meaning... Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, there's technology out there to do it better, but we're the military and it's, figure it the fuck yeah, out. figure it out. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. we're not going to think we're going to, we're not going to spend six weeks thinking about how to solve this problem. We're going to do it the way that we know it can get done today. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot about how we, we, how we stop breaking soldiers, how we, how we, uh, how we create physically resilient soldiers uh, when you're you know marching 15 20 miles a day with a 100 pound pack on your back and 
what I've seen over and over again is the is the just get, just do it, just grit it, grit through it, and in March, and then it'll be over in in a week or or six weeks or fifteen months. Instead of you know, how do we immediately change change what we're using, what we're doing to um, work smarter, not harder? You know. Uh, not here. I mean, do you, you just asked a question that's like near and dear to my heart, so I'm gonna try to <laughs> keep my remarks to like less than ten minutes. Uh, but, uh, I'll grab another beer. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the, uh, so two, two things right off the bat. One is, uh, I'll just go back to the defense innovation board. So Adam Grant is actually one of the principals on the defense innovation board. So he's certainly, he's, he's advising people at the highest levels of, of DOD on, on how to, to write the ship, if you will, uh, in terms of our organizational culture. And then the second thing, going back to principals that are on the board, uh, the, the president of the board is, is Eric Schmidt. Uh, who's the former chairman at Alphabet. And Eric's got a great quote, which is that DOD doesn't have an innovation problem. They have an innovation adoption problem. Mm. Um, so the, the, he, he talks about a lot about all of the service members, the soldiers, airmen, sailors, and, uh, and Marines that he's met. They are very highly innovative people. Um, and we talk about, you know, um, in, in conflicts past and in, in the conflicts that we participated in, how much our soldiers would just like, make shit happen on a daily basis and just like create, you know, weld some crazy piece of armor to the outside of something to fight some obscure enemy tactic, right? Like that, that stuff has happened in warfare since the beginning of warfare. Um, and, and it's still the same today in, in the military. Um, I would say there, are, there are a couple barriers and I would just point to the difference, the difference that, that I experienced in being in what we call the garrison military, which is anytime you're home and at home station versus being in the deployed military. Uh, and I think a lot about that difference. When I was, when I was forward as a company commander, I was in charge of, um, well, this is also funny. Uh, I was supposed to take 168 soldiers forward. Uh, the, due to the troop cap that we had at the time, they were like, you can deal with about 75% of that. Uh, and so they were like, go take 75% of your standard manning forward. Uh, and we're going to give you three pieces of tactical infrastructure to spread your forces across, uh, across. And oh, by the way, your area of operations is the size of fucking Singapore. <laughs> and you're the only infantry unit in that area of operations. And you're protecting all of Kandahar airfield. And I was like, yeah, I got that. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, 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 so let's say we'll take that as, as the contrast that to when I'm back in home station, when my boss is like literally in the building next door to me, we all have like morning formation where we all show up in one place and stand there and salute the flag and all that other stuff. Um, and, and I have meetings every single day and yada, yada, yada. So when I look at those two environments, um, and I, I think about like the sort of the stifling bureaucracy and micromanagement that I had in garrison versus the full control and autonomy and resourcing that I had in, in Afghanistan. Um, it really comes down to those two things. It's, it's autonomy and resourcing. So if, if the military is going to fix its innovation adoption problem, it's got to give its leaders autonomy to make decisions that are truly innovative. And then it's got to resource those decisions appropriately. And really, that's what it comes down to. Give, give folks dollars and give them the, the autonomy to make those sorts of decisions. And I think Catherine brings up a fantastic example with the Air Force. The Air Force is way out front on innovation stuff. And, I, and it literally pains me to say that. Um, <laughs> but 
Uh, but they're really doing great things. They, in addition to this this pitch day that they have, they have this other concept out there right now uh, that they're piloting called the Squadron Innovation Fund. So the Squadron Commanders is a battalion commander at at, at uh, you know in the Marine Corps or the or the, um, the Army. They're in charge of about four to six hundred to seven hundred people, and they're saying here is here are dollars, here are operational dollars when you're in garrison to do with whatever you want, right? And it could be purchasing software systems. It could be hiring developers to help help create something totally new. Um, and uh, and and that's a that's a level of autonomy and resourcing that is unfamiliar territory in the military, and it really should be more commonplace. Mm-hmm. So, well, if we have no further questions, I really appreciate you guys hanging in there. We're we're way over time, and uh, and thanks so much. And thanks again to to Nathan and Catherine for for being here. Yeah, thanks, thanks, guys. guys. Yeah, Ooh, appreciate thank it. You. Yay. Awesome. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that event as much as we did. But if we're being self-critical, Joy and I should probably underscore one very important point. We believe the United States spends way too much on defense relative to other federal budget priorities. If you look at the total federal budget, including mandatory spending, The U.S. allocates roughly 20% of its budget to the military and veterans' benefits. And if you look at the discretionary budget alone, that proportion climbs to over 54% on defense spending and over 60% when you count veterans' benefits. So if money talks and your budget is a statement of your priorities, America's priorities are pretty clear. We also know that the largest cost drivers for the military are personnel and maintenance costs, which make up a full third of the Pentagon's budget. As much as military commanders talked about the threat to America's national security under the mandatory spending cuts from sequestration, we know there's a lot of bloat and waste in the system. And I'm not talking about soldiers who get paid too much money, but the millions of dollars in unused and underutilized equipment that sits in connexes on military bases year-round covered in dust. Yep. We've both seen this firsthand. Plus, U.S. taxpayers are paying about $32 million an hour, not per day, not even in a month, Oof. $32 million an hour to finance post 9-11 conflicts. Just think about where $32 million an hour could go if we spent, spent it elsewhere. Exactly. So like Nathan talked about, the real promise of integrating technology and borrowing best practices from the private sector is one word, efficiency. DOD needs to get leaner and more efficient if they want to both save money and boost capability to truly do more with less. The American people deserve attention and resources to other vital social programs like education and healthcare, and they deserve dollars to fix our crumbling national infrastructure. And we need more military leaders like Catherine and Nathan to step up and say that publicly, loud and proud. And I'm really proud we were able to get them on the show and to highlight their voices just for you. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us next time for our season finale. We'll be sitting down with veterans from the UW community to hear their visions for America and their parting advice for the graduating class of 2019. Speak Freely is recorded in Seattle on location and produced by Andrew Pepler and Joy Turner. Thanks to all our listeners who continue to support Speak Freely. We're almost done with our second season and we wouldn't have gotten this far without you. Our fantastic music was provided by the band Stubborn Son, who you can find on SoundCloud, Spotify, Facebook, and YouTube. You can download and listen to episodes of Speak Freely on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Be sure to follow the show on Facebook at Speak Freely Podcast, all one word, or on Twitter at SPK underscore Freely. And if you're a veteran or no one that has a lot to say, 
and might want to be on the show, send us an email at speakfreelypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. Speak freely. Out. Fight well, my brother. Don't forget your home. Return with victory. Tell your woman all you know. And though you fight till you die, to keep worry from her mind. No, you do not fight alone. Run stick ass blood, not bone.